What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. at a few verses in Romans chapter 3 that answers really the the greatest question that people need to ask, and that is how can a person be right with God? There's really no more important question than that because being right with God is the most important thing that any of us have. And, you know, our world is full of people who are really trying to find the answer to this question. How can I be right with God? And they're trying to do all sorts of things in order to become right with God. All across the world today, people are going to be doing good works or religious works, and ultimately for the purpose of thinking that this stuff is going to make me right with the God that I believe in. Millions of people today will pray towards Mecca, hoping that will make them right with the God that they believe in. You'll have millions of Buddhists and Hindus and Mormons and, and people of different religious backgrounds doing specific works today, seeking to gain the approval to make them right before the God they believe in. You know, the desire to be right with God really explains most of the religious activity that we see in the world today. That's the the driving force behind it. I'm doing this because I want to be right. I want to be approved before God. So how can a person be right with God? Well, the world has come up with all sorts of different answers and different methods to how this is possible. But what is the true answer? What is the right answer to this question? Do I have to do a bunch of good works in order to be right with God? Do I have to do a bunch of religious works? Do I have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca? Do I have to visit a temple? Do I have to pray a rosary? What is it that I have to do to be right with God? Well, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, we're going to give a a clear and true answer to this question question, one that God has inspired himself. How is it that you and I can be right with him? He wants to reveal that to us. Paul is now transitioning from writing about sin to writing about salvation. For the last three chapters, Paul has focused on the reality that all of us are sinful people. We are sinners who deserve God's judgment. The immoral people, the moral people, the religious people, everybody falls under the same category of people who have sinned and deserve the judgment of God. Paul finished this section on sin with a 14-count indictment against all humanity. And this 14-count indictment revealed how sinful and how depraved humanity is in their character, in their communication, and in their conduct. And the last thing that Paul tells us in the section on sin is the verdict. The verdict that God has given against all humanity and the verdict is this, we are guilty. 
And because we are guilty of sin, we deserve the judgment and the wrath of God. Now, Paul started Romans with the section on sin to reveal to us the bad news where every one of us are. We're sinful people who deserve the judgment of God, but he did that to prepare us for the good news. He did that to help us see how good the good news is because until you understand the bad news, you won't really grasp how good the good news is of what God has done to save us from our sin. And so the first section in Romans deals with the bad news of sin. And this morning we're going to start a new section, one of the the best sections in the book of Romans dealing with salvation. What has God done to save us from our sins? In this section, Paul is going to share with us three main things to help us understand salvation more fully. First, Paul is going to share with us an explanation of righteousness. How does someone be right with God? He's going to give us a wonderful explanation of that. Second, Paul's going to share with us an illustration of justification by faith. And third, Paul's going to share with us the results of being righteous and justified before God. This morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It's just six verses, but we're going to be looking at the explanation of righteousness. There's so much depth and wonderful truth in these verses. We're going to answer the question, how can a person be right with God? Donald Barnhouse said this about Romans. He said, Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the heart of the Bible. Donald Barnhouse is a commentator who's echoing the the sentiments of so many others who recognize these six verses are the heart. They're, They're something that is so deep They're the theology in Scripture that is so important and profound, and and we need to understand it. So what we're going to look at this morning is really one of the most important truths for us to grasp. For some of you, this is going to be something that's a reminder, something that you've heard, but I hope it just seeks in deeper, and I hope that you are more capable of communicating it because it's this truth that people desperately need to hear and understand. In these six verses, Paul is going to share with us seven vital truths about God's righteousness. And he's going to answer for us seven of the most important questions there are concerning God's righteousness. Where does God's righteousness come from? Where doesn't God's righteousness come from? How can we receive God's righteousness? Who is God's righteousness available to? How does God give his righteousness? What did it cost God to provide his righteousness? And finally, how can God be just when offering righteousness to sinners? The answer to these seven questions are found in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And let's start by reading these verses, and then we're going to break down each one and see what they teach us about God's righteousness. Starting in verse 21, it says this. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believed. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation for His blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus. Paul starts by saying, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. You know, one of the greatest words in scripture is this word, but. You hear all this negative about humanity and their sin and the problem, and then all of a sudden God says, but there's a solution. But now is this transition from Romans chapter 3, 21 uh, or 20 and everything before and all the sin that he's been talking about, all the judgment that we deserve. And now we have this transition to the righteousness that's available to us, to the salvation that God has made possible to us. You know, one of the indictments that we had in those 14 indictments about humanity is no one is righteous No, not one. He emphasizes that. Not one of us is righteous before God. So if none of humanity is righteous, how do we become righteous? How can a person who is not righteous become righteous before God? Well, Paul answers those big questions by answering several more specific questions, and he follows a a logical progression. He wants us to understand these wonderful truths about God's righteousness. And he starts by making sure we know the answer to a question that seems to be obvious. Where does God's righteousness come from? Well, it comes from God himself. Well, that's great. Yeah, well, it's important to understand because one of the big problems that many people have when it comes to God's righteousness is they don't understand it doesn't come from them. Paul's just spent Three chapters revealing to us how depraved we are, how sinful we are, how unrighteous we are. Righteousness does not come from you or from me. There is none who does good in the eyes of God. All our works are like filthy rags to him. Each one of us, we were born sinners. We were not born righteous. And no amount of moral reformation is going to change that reality. Since there is no righteousness within you, the only kind of righteousness that will save you is a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. Let me say that again. Since there is no righteousness within you, the only kind of righteousness that will save you is a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. It will not come from within you. It will not be something that you do to attain it. It has to come from another Source. That's what Paul means when he says a righteousness from God has been revealed. God has revealed that there is a righteousness that is available to us that comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from God himself and he delivers it to you and to me. This is the good news of salvation. It's where it begins. The righteousness we need comes from God himself. It does not come from us. You know, it's been said that righteousness is the sum total of all that God commands, demands, approves, and himself provides. He has the standard of what righteousness is, but the wonderful reality is he is the one who has provided righteousness for you and for me. So the start of the good news of salvation is that God himself provides us the righteousness that we need to be saved. Now, the religious Jew or religious people as a whole would agree, oh, yes, God is the source. He's the one who gives righteousness. But then they would go on to say, and he has given that to us 
through the law. That's how we become righteous. He's given us the law, and, and that's how it enables you and I to be righteous. We just live up to the, the law, and therefore we become righteous. Or as religious people would say, you know, you just do enough good works, and that's what's going to make you right with God. And so those in that religious category, they would agree, oh yes, God is the source, but yet they think God has given us righteousness through the law, through something that we must do. And so this next question that Paul is going to answer is going to destroy that thinking. The thinking that I can be righteous through the works that I do, through trying to keep the law of God. He answers this question in verse 21, which says this, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets. Notice that Paul clearly says that the righteousness that God offers, the righteousness that God reveals to us is apart from the law. The righteousness of God is not offered through keeping the law. It is not offered through doing good works or religious works. That is not how you and I receive it. So the answer to the question, where doesn't righteousness come from? It doesn't come from trying to keep the law. We don't become righteous by trying to do God's perfect standard. I want you to imagine that Visa offered a, a million dollar prize to anyone who could swim nonstop from San Diego to Hawaii. And six carefully screened swimmers show up, all of them, you know, uh, decorated swimmers. And one of them, the most decorated Olympic swimmer of all, Michael Phelps, joins these six swimmers and they all go to the beach in San Diego and they start swimming towards Honolulu, Hawaii to win a million dollar prize. Well, after about six hours, the first swimmer quits because of cramps in his side. Four hours later, the second swimmer stops when he realized how far he still must go. After 20 hours in the water, three more swimmers quit because of sheer exhaustion. But Michael Phelps, he continues on and swims for an amazing 48 hours before having to stop. So will Michael Phelps win a million dollars? No, because he didn't swim all the way to Hawaii. The prize was not offered to the one who swam the farthest. The prize was offered to the one who actually made it to Hawaii. Since no one made it, no one wins the prize. All six swimmers, they tried valiantly. They did their best, and some did better than others, but none achieved the ultimate goal. In the same way, when it comes to keeping the law of God in order to obtain the reward of righteousness, some do it better than others. Some fail worse than others, but the reality is we all fall short of keeping God's law perfectly. And since God demands perfection, no one can be made righteous by keeping the law. This is why we need a law, we need, sorry, righteousness that comes apart from the law. If righteousness came by keeping the law, guess what? No one would ever be righteous because none of us can achieve that perfect standard. None of us can do it. This is something so important to understand. You don't receive righteousness by trying to keep God's perfect standard. And that is good news. It's good news that you and I don't have to meet God's perfect standard to be righteous. It's bad news if we did because we'd all fail. It's good news that God says, you know what? I have another way. It's not this way. It's not trying to attain my perfect standard. You can't do that way. And I've made another way. And that's good news for you. It's good news for me. We're not dependent on keeping God's perfect standard to receive 
righteousness. And since it's not a requirement for salvation, guess what? Those who have broken God's law, they can be saved. Those who have broken God's law can be made righteous. And that's wonderful news because all of us have broken the law of God. And all of us can be made righteous before God even though we have broken His law because law-keeping is not what determines whether or not you and I can be right before the Lord. Now Paul goes on, to say something in verse 21 that would help, especially the religious Jews. Oh, what are you talking about here, Paul? There's no way that you could say righteousness is apart from the law. Well, actually, I'm not the one saying this. This is something that God clearly revealed in the Old Testament. Notice he says, it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. This truth that righteousness comes apart from the law is not something that Paul came up with. It's something that Paul is just revealing that the Old Testament has always said. It's always revealed. God never intended the law to save us. That was never its purpose. One of those examples is in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, which says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name, which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. This is pointing to the Messiah, the one that's going to come. God always was pointing to the righteousness isn't going to come from you trying to keep the law. The righteousness is going to come by the one that I send who will bring righteousness with him. The law and the prophets. Never were pointing people to do their own works in order to achieve righteousness. It was always pointing people to Jesus. It was always pointing people to the Messiah. You know, this is something that the Jews of Jesus' day missed. They missed that God never intended the law, the word of God, to save them. And this is why Jesus says this to them in John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus brings up, hey, you religious leaders, you're searching the scriptures. You're trying to do what they say because you think in them, by doing the law, that's how you obtain eternal life. No, that's not how it is. They speak of me. They point to me. You want eternal life. You must come to me. I am the source of eternal life. I am the one that makes you righteous. The law never can do that for you. They point to you. You see, that wasn't God's purpose in giving the law. He didn't give the law to say, here, here's the way to be righteous. He gave the law to help us understand, here's my perfect standard. And the only thing the law is going to do is reveal to you, you can't meet it. You need a savior. You've fallen short. And it's going to point you to your need for Jesus Christ. It's going to point you to your need for the Messiah. That was the purpose for the law. It wasn't to make us righteous. God's plan was always to bring righteousness apart from the law. But so many people miss this and they think, through my works, I am going to obtain righteousness. No, you will not. That is not possible for us to do. So if righteousness comes from keeping the law, if it doesn't come from doing good works, then how can you and I receive this righteousness? If we can't receive it by what we do, how do we get it? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. 
The answer to the question, how can we receive this righteousness? If we don't do works to get it, how do you and I receive it? And Paul answers that very clearly. We receive the righteousness of God only by faith in Jesus. The word translated faith means a belief, firm persuasion, conviction, or trust in something. The only way to have a right standing before God, the only way to be righteous before Him is if we place our belief, our firm persuasion, our conviction and trust in who Jesus is, that He is God, and in what He has done for you and I, that He died on the cross for our sins, and that He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. Frank Gablian said this, Contrary to popular secular opinion, biblical faith is not a leap in the dark, but it's a leap into the light. Faith is not subjective, but is based on objective truth. The truth of God's holy inspire, inspired, totally infallible word of truth of life. Faith is not contrary to the rules of logic, good sense, or reason. In fact, what could be more reasonable than the creature should trust his creator? who has provided the way for him to come back into fellowship with him through the blood of the Lamb. You know, so many people think, well, faith is just kind of this blind leap into the absurd. If i got to put faith in God, i got to just be a complete moron to do that. No, our faith is not based on absurdity. It's based on evidence. It's based on truth. It's based on the real uh, revelation of God's word to us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us really the same truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul emphasizes, hey, your salvation, my salvation, the way to be right with God is through one thing and one thing only, faith in Jesus. It is not of ourselves. It is not of our works. He emphasizes that. He wants us to understand that because so many people buy into the lie that salvation and righteousness is because of me, something that I do, some work that I accomplish. That's what makes me right with God. That's what saves me. No, it is faith in the work of Jesus, not in what I do. You know, many people are ultimately putting their faith in themselves. Saving faith is only faith that is placed in who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. That is saving faith. If you put faith in yourself, you put faith in your works, you put faith in some religious thing, that will not save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that he is God, the fact that he died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead, that is the only faith that saves. Then a question that many would have for Paul is, okay, Paul, well, who is God's righteousness available to? You say it's not by works, but it's by faith. Well, well, who gets this? And especially Jews would want to know this because they thought, well, surely we are the ones who are the, the favored of God. So who is allowed to have this righteousness? Well, this is a wonderful, wonderful answer. Verse 22 and 23. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The answer to the question, who is righteousness available to? It's available to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, it's at this point where you would have some people object. <laughs> Wait a second, Paul. 
So you're telling me that anyone, I mean the worst possible sinner that I can think of, if they at some point in time in their life put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would now have the righteousness of God? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yes, that's exactly what Paul is telling us. Now the only reason we would have a problem with God saving anyone who put their faith in Jesus is because we think we are better than other people. We think that other people who have sinned, in our opinion, worse than us, are not deserving of this righteousness, but yet we who have sinned less than them, we are deserving. This is why Paul goes on to say something very important. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, the difference that we have with others is one of degree, not one of kind. We are all the same kind of people. We're all sinners. The difference might be in degree. I might sin in a greater degree than you, or you might sin in a greater degree than me, but we are still of the same kind. We're still in the same boat. We are all sinners. Or maybe look at it this way. It's like we all have a terminal disease and we have all been quarantined in a hospital. For some, that disease might be more rampant in our bodies. The degree in which that disease manifests itself might be greater in some than in others. But guess what? We all have the same disease and ultimately it's going to kill each and every one of us. Whether my degree is worse than yours is irrelevant. We're all in the same place. There's no difference. We are all sinners. And this is where this flaw in thinking makes me think, well, since you're a worse sinner than me, I'm deserving of this righteousness and you are not. The flaw is thinking that I am deserving. The reality is no one's deserving because there's no difference. We're all sinners. And because we're all sinners, no one deserves this righteousness. And so for me to think, what are you saying? You're saying that someone like Adolf Hitler could could accept Jesus Christ and be saved or some horrible you know, person, this murderer or whatever. Yes. There's no difference. We're all sinful. No one deserves it. God in his grace offers it. And he says, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And this is something that's so important for us because I've heard way too many people think, well, there's no way that God could forgive so-and-so. I mean, look what they have done. Yes, he can. He offers forgiveness. He offers righteousness. He offers salvation to everyone. No matter how much you've sinned, no matter how messed up your life is, if you'll come to Jesus Christ and ask for His forgiveness and put your faith in Him, God promises He will save you. It's available to all who believe in Jesus. Well, that's great, some might say, that God's righteousness is available to all who believe in Jesus, but how does God give this righteousness? Well, this is a wonderful answer, verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The answer to the question, how does God give His righteousness? God gives His righteousness freely by His grace. We are justified Freely, which means that it is without cost to us. Salvation is a free gift. Righteousness is something that God freely offers to you and to me. And this is so important to understand because the only way that you and I could actually receive this is if it's free. Because nothing that we could do could pay for it. 
No good work, no amount of effort could actually deserve and pay for and earn this righteousness. So unless it was free, there's no way that you and I could ever get enough to pay for what this is worth. So God gives it freely, but you know what? He also gives it by His grace. The word grace means unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. None of us deserve, none of us can earn, none of us can merit God's righteousness. And God, He gives it to us freely because He's gracious. Because He says, I will give to those who don't deserve it. I will give to those who can't earn it, who don't merit it, because I am gracious. This is such wonderful news. God saves people like you and I who don't deserve salvation, who can never earn salvation. This is why he says anyone who believes in Jesus can be saved because none of us are deserving. None of us could earn it. We're all in that same boat. Paul wants to make very clear that the righteousness of God is a free gift from God. All we do is accept it by believing in Jesus. All right, so if righteousness doesn't cost us anything, well then, what did it cost God to provide his righteousness? And how could God be just when offering righteousness to people who are sinful? Well, Paul's going to answer these final two questions in verses 24 through 26. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate that at the present time His righteousness, that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul answers these two questions. What did it cost God to give us His righteousness? And how can God be just when offering righteousness to sinners? And in answering these questions, Paul paints for us three wonderful pictures. The three pictures come from three very important words. Justified, redemption, and propitiation. Let's start with the first picture that Paul paints for us using the word justified. The word justified means to declare someone as not guilty. It's a legal term. It paints a picture of us standing before God on trial. Well, as we have clearly saw in our sin section, we're all guilty. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who's done good. The verdict is guilty as charged. So how can God justify, declare someone not guilty when they already are guilty of sin? Well, the way that God is able to justify you and I is because of the amazing exchange that Jesus Christ offers to us. Jesus is able to offer us this wonderful exchange because Jesus became one of us and He lived a perfect life. He was sinless. Guess what? He was not guilty of any sin. He met God's perfect standard in a perfect way. But it didn't end there. He then took our sin upon Himself on the cross and took God's judgment and wrath upon Himself. And because He did that, He is now able to offer us this wonderful exchange. He says, here, you can have my sinlessness and I will take your sin and the judgment and the consequence and the wrath of God that you deserve upon Myself. And because of that, it enables God 
to justify us, enables God to declare us not guilty. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Because Jesus paid for our sin, because he gave us his sinlessness, God is able to say, hey, though your sin was red like scarlet, I will make it pure white. Because now Jesus has given you his sinlessness. Now that's how I see you as not guilty. I no longer see you in your sin. I see you in Christ. He took your sin. He took the judgment. And if you are willing to put your faith in him, this wonderful exchange happens. And now I can justify you. I can declare you as not guilty because I punished Jesus instead of punishing you. And that's where the people would say, well, wait a second. How can you still be just when offering righteousness to a sinner? God is just because the sin was punished. God poured his wrath on our sin. He judged our sin. He just did it to Jesus on the cross. So he is just because he did, as the just judge, punish sin. Jesus just took it for us, which enabled us to not have to receive it. So God can still be just in offering righteousness to sinful people because he himself paid the price for our sin. Salvation is free but it's not cheap. So often we think, oh, free, it's worthless. Free, it can't be good. Salvation's free to us, but it was not cheap. It cost God what was most valuable to him, his own life. What did he have to give? He had to give his life in order to offer righteousness to you and to me. This is wonderful news. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified before God. He now sees us just as if we never sin. He sees us not guilty. Paul paints a second picture for us by using the word redemption. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means to buy back, to be released and freed by the payment of a ransom. Now, when we think of ransom, we probably think of a wealthy person who had their child kidnapped and someone calls and says, hey, unless you pay us a million or how many much dollars, you're never going to see your child again. But there's four different Greek words that could be translated ransom in the English language. And it's very interesting, the one that Paul uses, because the one that Paul uses is specifically connected to slavery. In that time, you could be sold into slavery. You could not be able to pay your bills and place into slavery. And your loved ones would seek to buy you back out of slavery. They'd want to redeem you. You're in slavery. You're bound to that. And they could buy you out of that so that you no longer have to be a slave. And the word that Paul uses here, redemption, is the specific word used for slaves. And this is a wonderful picture because the Bible tells us that you and I are slaves. Before we accept Jesus Christ, we are slaves to something horrible. We're slaves to sin. Romans chapter 3, or 6, sorry, verse 17 and 18 says this, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. You and I used to be slaves of sin. And for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they are still slaves of sin. We couldn't pay the price to redeem ourselves out of slavery. But because God loves us, 
He says, I want to deliver you from slavery to sin. I want to free you from that. And I'm willing to pay the price to bring you that freedom, to buy you out of slavery. Well, what did it cost? What did God have to pay for you and I to be free, to no longer be slaves to sin? It cost God his life. Jesus' death on the cross, His shed blood, was the price for you and I to be set free from our sin. And on a side note, I want to say this for those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ. When we seek to go back into sin, I want you to remember the price that was paid to free you from it. The price that was paid to deliver you from it. And how foolish of us to think, hey, I'm just going to go dabble back into that. I'm not going to go live back in that lifestyle when God gave his son to bring us freedom. And so often we put those chains back on. We put that slave clothes back on. And God says, what are you doing? I freed you from this. I delivered you from this. Don't go back. You have so much more in a relationship with me. You have so much more that I want to give you in the freedom that I offer to you. When the sinner puts their faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for them on the cross, God releases that person from their slavery to sin and sets them free forever. Jesus said this in John 8, 34 through 36. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who has made us free and we will be free indeed. If we place our faith in who He is and what He has done for us, we can be freed from the slavery that we have to sin. God will deliver us if we do that. Well, can God be just in offering freedom to sinners who deserve to be enslaved to their sin? Yes. Because he's the one who paid the price for our freedom. He's the one who gave his life for it to happen. He's the one that took the consequences, who took the judgment for us. He is just in giving us freedom because he paid the price to do it. He doesn't just let us go. He said there's a price that has to be paid, and it's a steep one. But I'm willing to pay it for you in order to bring freedom, and I can still be just in doing it because I personally paid the price to make you free. That freedom is only possible when we place our faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Paul paints a third picture for us by using a word, propitiation. Not a word we use so often in our English language. It means to appease through sacrifice, to turn away from wrath by the offering of a gift. You know, most religions are built in the concept of propitiation they'll bring a chicken they'll bring a goat they'll bring a lamb they'll bring food they'll bring something to offer to the god that they believe in to appease that god and the hope that the wrath of that god will not be poured out upon them because of the sacrifice that they offered in a in a much different level husbands sometimes do this after having a fight with their wife on the way home from work, they will buy flowers. They will offer that flower as a, as a peace offering, as a sacrifice. Here, this will hopefully appease your wrath and I will no longer receive it because I brought this to you. So propitiation is the process where people try and appease God and turn away God's wrath through offering Him a sacrifice. 
You know, with this word, Paul is painting a picture that especially the religious Jews who were reading this letter would have grabbed hold of very clearly because it points to one of the most important aspects of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. But there is actually a Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So it's the Old Testament written in Greek. And the interesting thing is this Greek word that Paul uses, which is translated in English, propitiation, is the same Greek word in the Old Testament when you use a Septuagint translated mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat is one of the most significant and important things in the temple, in the sacrificial system. And I want to share a little bit with you about that so you can kind of grasp what propitiation and this picture that Paul is giving to us means. The most significant thing in the temple is the Ark of the Covenant, which would look something like this. The Ark was this small chest made of acacia wood. It was covered in pure gold. And the mercy seat was the lid. The lid that was this golden lid that also had two golden cherubim on each side facing one another with their wings stretched out and they were looking down upon the mercy seat. And God would speak, we're told, to the high priest there at the mercy seat. Now these cherubim represent the judgment of God and and notice their position that they're constantly looking down. They're looking down at the mercy seat and right below the mercy seat, if you took off the lid, one of the things that was in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the law that nobody could live up to. So these symbol of judgment are, are looking down at the mercy seat and you know on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest would come and he would offer sacrifice and then he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And the blood on the mercy seat would be a covering for the sins of Israel. So as a cherubim, which are God's symbol of judgment, would look down on the mercy seat, they wouldn't see the law that revealed all the things that the nation of Israel broke. Instead, they would see the blood of the sacrifice, which would appease and would enable God's wrath to not be given. It would avert God's wrath from Israel. So you see, this word mercy seat is the same word translated propitiation, meaning to appease through sacrifice, to turn away wrath, by the offering of a gift. God had the high priest sprinkle blood to point to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. It was to appease God's wrath, but there was going to be a sacrifice that would appease God's wrath forever. Not the sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a lamb, but the sacrifice of God Himself. Jesus is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. He is the one who sacrificed himself, who shed his blood for us so that we could now not have the wrath of God be poured upon us. Well, how can God be just if he doesn't pour wrath on people who deserve it? God can still be just because he poured his wrath on Jesus. The wrath was poured out. It was poured out on Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life. God poured his wrath on sin. He did it on Jesus so he can still be just in enabling us not to receive his wrath. So with these three pictures, Paul answers these two questions. What did it cost God to provide us his righteousness? It cost him the most significant, most important, most costly thing of all. 
It costs the death of Jesus on the cross. And how can God be just when offering righteousness to sinners? God can be just because his judgment and wrath were poured out on Jesus who took our sin. You know, these three pictures that Paul paints for us shares with us a solution to huge problems that we face as sinful mankind. Justification solves the problem of mankind's guilt before a righteous judge. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can now be declared justified, not guilty. Redemption solves the problem of mankind's slavery to sin. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we are redeemed. Jesus' death bought us back. He paid the price to free us from our slavery. Propitiation solves the problem of mankind's sin, which deserves God's wrath. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, God is now appeased. His wrath has been poured out on Jesus and does not have to be poured out on you or I. And this is the good, or should we say great news, that Paul wants us to understand about righteousness. But please don't miss something very important about all of this. It's only available. All that I've shared, all these wonderful things are only available to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and who he is, that he is God and what he has done to make all this possible, that he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. He took the judgment that we deserve. He incurred God's wrath that we should have. And three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. It is that which we must put our faith in in order to receive the blessings that we see here in these wonderful verses. Verse 26 tells us, that God did all of this that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith who has faith in Jesus. Paul brings it all back. Faith in Jesus. This is the key. This is where it all stems from. This is where you receive these wonderful things. I started this teaching asking the most important question anyone can ask. How can someone be right with God? The answer to that question is they must put their faith in the fact that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for their sins, that he rose from the dead, and they must ask Jesus to forgive them of their sin and to save them. Our faith in Jesus is what enables God to be, to make us righteous. It's what enables God to justify us, to redeem us, to not pour his wrath upon us. But for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus, here's the thing they have to grasp. Those who have not put their trust in the fact that Jesus died in their place, that he gives this wonderful exchange, what they're ultimately saying is, I don't believe that. I don't trust in that. And so therefore, I'm not going to allow Jesus to take the punishment for my sin. And when you're in that place, the justice of God now turns to you and says, okay, if you will not accept the sacrifice of my son for your sin, then I must you know, require something from you. You now must pay for your sin. And the Bible tells us that that will be an eternity in hell. God must punish sin to be just. He did it on Jesus Christ, but it's only given to those who place their faith in Jesus. Those who reject Jesus, God says, well, then for you, you yourself must pay the punishment. If you will not accept what Jesus did for you, then you must pay it yourself. And that payment is hell, an eternity of separation from God. You see, in this life and this life only, you have an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior. But the day that you die, 
you will meet him as your judge. And if you did not accept him in this life as your savior, then in the next, when you stand before him after you've died and the great white throne, you will face your judgment and your judgment will be hell. God loves you. He loves me so much. He paid the price for our sin because he doesn't want to have to pour his wrath upon you. He doesn't want to have to pour his judgment upon you. He poured it on his own son to not have to pour it on you, but he does not force you. He does not force me to choose to place our belief in Jesus Christ. He says, you get to make the choice. Either you're going to accept what Jesus has done for you, or you're going to try to do it yourself, and you're going to receive my wrath in the process. The choice is ours but it's the most important choice we will ever make. There are a lot of different thoughts out there as to how can someone be right with God, but the God who created heaven and earth reveals clearly in his word, it's only one way, through faith in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. There's no good works. There's no religious works. There's no other path. Only faith in Jesus will bring Righteousness, salvation, and a relationship with God. Let's pray.